If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn in them to uh, the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36 would be great. If you've got your copy of the story, go to chapter 17. If you're new to NBC, and I, and I hope that you are, this is a place where if you absolutely love Jesus and you're following Jesus and, and, you, and you, you are exploring God's word for truth, this is the church for you. If you're someone who's like, no, nah, I'm not a Christian, I've got tons of doubts, I've got tons of questions, this is the church for you because this is the place where we want you to actually come and engage those, those questions, engage those doubts in a place where we can actually look at the source. We're in a series where we're going through the storyline of Scripture, the, the storyline of what God is saying from the beginning of the Bible to the end. And so the copy of the story that a lot of you guys have picked up um, in the atrium is something that has all the Scripture we're going through for the year. And so if you'd like to join with us in that, you could pick one of these up at the Hub um, on your way out today. That'd be great. But for those of you, um, and, and if, you, if you're just catching us at this point, jump in the past couple of weeks to try to see where we've been up to this point because this is a pretty pivotal point in the history line and storyline of the Bible. Um, we talked about this a little bit last week. I'm just going to kind of condense it. But we talked about how the whole Bible starts in southeast Iraq. That's where the creation, creation count starts. It's also where God calls Abraham and says, you're going to be a nation. And what are the three things that uh, you have to have in order to have a nation? People, government, land. And so he says, these things are going to happen. Abraham has a hard time believing it, but he goes out on faith because he doesn't have any kids. He doesn't have any land. And, and, and so, and he doesn't have a government. God provides all those things and calls him from Iraq to ultimately reside in this place. Now they, they, they bypass the whole thing by being in Egypt, enslaved, enslaved in Egypt for about 400 years. But ultimately they get to the land where they have a government, which is God's uh, 10 commandments and all the rest of the laws that he gives them at Mount Sinai after they get out of Egypt. They've got the people they're, they're a multi-million um, person nation at this point, and they've got the land, the property. And, and, God, and God says, here's the thing, what you are, I mean, they could literally have the mission statement, our mission as the, the nation of Israel is to be real with God, real with each other, and real in the world. One true God, not a bunch of different gods. You know, we're not allowing our, our relationship with God to be cheated on by all these other pagan religions. It's just us and God, and that's going to impact the way we have a relationship with one another. You look through all of Leviticus, and it talks about that. And it's going to impact even the people who are foreigners in our land, that we actually treat them better than any other nation because we are like a lighthouse. We're like a beacon for the world. And God says, if you're following me and you do those things, this is going to work. And people are like... Yeah, no. And so what ends up happening is they end up in civil war, the northern kingdom being Israel, the southern kingdom being Judah. God brings in prophets, warns them about what's going to happen if they keep going down this path. And, and inevitably it happens. God says, I'm going to, if you want independence for me, you want to declare your own sovereignty, I'll step out of the way. And so when God does that, the northern kingdom gets exported out, deported into Assyria. Assyrians were the world power of torture and absolutely barbaric means of warfare. They get out of there. God warns Judah, this is going to happen to you too if you don't, if you don't step in line. Babylon takes over Assyria, and then Babylon takes over Judah and exports them out. We talked about this last week and how starkly, absolutely, hurtfully offensive this picture is on the map because they've gone backwards. They've absolutely gone right back to where God called them out of, and, they, and they've, they've flip, you know, gone right back to that place. Now, that southern kingdom of Judah, it actually, they get uh, the first... Uh, 
the nation of Israel, they start getting deported out in the 700s BC. Judah, it's like in the 500s, and it's, it's a series of deportations. On the first deportation, this guy named Ezekiel gets deported out, and he's about 25 years old. Anyone here like 25, 25, 24-ish? Okay, a couple of us. Yeah, some people raising their hand. They're lying. Okay. He's about 25 when he gets deported out. And, um, and that's a bummer because Ezekiel is a priest. And when you turn 30 in Jerusalem, you actually become a priest, like a pre legit priest. And so he's super stoked to be a priest. But he's not in Jerusalem. Where is he now? Babylon. He's now in Babylon. Ezekiel gets deported out to this foreign place where he's not treated well because, again, he, he's someone who's one of the, uh, one of, one of the aspects that people, one of the, the things that people bring out of warfare. He's just a, a thing. And he's in Ezekiel, and the book of Ezekiel actually starts when he's in a refugee camp on the side of an irrigation canal. In his refugee camp on the side of an irrigation canal, bummed out that he's not a priest in his 30th year. This is now five years later. God gives him a vision. And this vision blows his mind because it's absolutely bizarre. And if you've read the book of Ezekiel, you've read how bizarre this, this vision is. It's like this, this throne of the presence of God and the glory of God. And it's super, super like bright. And it's, there's like four angels that look crazy weird holding it up with floating wheels all around it. And, and the, way, the word that he describes this being, God's glory in the center, the word he uses is kavod. That, that's the word that, that we translate into the glory of God or, or sometimes even the presence of God. And it literally means heavy. It's like totally Marty McFly, Marty McFly from Back to the Future when he's talking about everything being heavy. He's saying kavod. Ezekiel is saying, I know what it's like to fall in love. I know what it's like to have your heart broken. I know what it's like to have life absolutely disappoint you. Those are all heavy, but this is different. This is more kavod. This is heavier. The presence of God is this palpable reality, and I'm getting that in this vision and in that vision, God says, basically says, okay, you were going to be a priest no longer. Now you're going to be my prophet. And you're going to warn all of your fellow deportees that just as bad as it was that you guys got ripped out of your homeland, something worse is coming back home in Jerusalem if they don't turn around. A worse, more catastrophic deportation. So Ezekiel, I want you to do some crazy weird stuff to get people's attention. Ezekiel's like, I'm game. What are we going to do? And then God tells him to do these things. First thing is, he, in the city streets, he plays with toys. And what he does is he, he actually makes this scale, um, this scale like model of the temple and shows what it's like, what it's going to be like when the Babylonian Empire is going to come down and take siege of the city. Can you imagine a 30-year-old doing this? You probably could. But that, that's, that's what Ezekiel's doing. And it's like, it's just as weird back then as it is now. And so Ezekiel's doing that. Another thing he does is he lays on his side for over a year. And, and what he's doing is, is just like in, in the Old Testament time when uh, they had two goats on the Day of Atonement where you knew that whatever you'd done in the past, God was going to forgive. You'd sacrifice one goat and then you'd take the other goat and you'd send it out of the city saying all of the sins are like symbolically laid on your head. So go, you're, you're, all of our guilt is leaving the town. And so Ezekiel's like, I'm going to lay on my back. I'm going to lay on my side for each of the years. One day for each of the years that you've been running away from God. And so people see him laying in the street, and you're like, what is his deal? And Ezekiel's like, well, let me tell you. And then he would talk to him about what God was telling him to do. But that wasn't it. The dude shaves off all of his hair and then chops it up with like a sword just to get their attention. And then one other thing he, he did was he actually laid, when he's laying on his side, he's grilling. Now that's not weird because honestly, if someone invented a way for you to grill and just like lay there, 
Come on, you know you would do it, right? You'd buy that. It, it, and so that's not weird. The thing is, the weird thing is what he's grilling, what he's using as fuel to grill his food. Do you remember what this was? Anybody? I hope you never forget this. He uses poop. And that's, how many are offended by that? Because there's people like, oh, that's just offensive. I know, it's so offensive. It's in here. And the thing is, is this, like at the 11 o'clock service, my son Ryland, he always sits right there in the back. And every time I preach, he's like taking mental notes. Not notes like, oh, this is how I grow closer to Christ. It's notes of like, how did dad embarrass the family today? And like he tells me at lunch, this is going to come up today at lunch. But the thing is, is that God uses offensive, bizarre behavior to get through, through Ezekiel to showcase a bigger message. So when people are like, dude, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? He would say, because of this. When the Babylonian empire that deported us out goes back home to Jerusalem, when they take down the city and they surround the city and they starve them out, the food that people are eating then will make this look like gourmet. This is how bad it is. And the sad thing is that God communicates to him in spite of all these bizarre stunts and street theater antics, they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to listen to you. A year later, he gives him another uh, vision. It's kind of like, remember in uh, the movie The Santa Claus, uh, Tim? Alan gives uh, his son that, the snow globe that if he shakes it, he can actually see what's happening elsewhere, right? Well, that, that's actually what God gives him the opportunity to have, that, that he, he can actually see what's taking place in the temple in Jerusalem. And instead of worshiping the one true God, they've brought in pagan practices, not just on the periphery, of the, in their closed doors, behind closed doors, which was bad enough, they actually brought it into the temple itself. And God's glory leaves the building. And when that happens... God says, fine, you want sovereignty, you want independence, I will pull back and allow naturally what happens when you live in independence from me. And Babylon comes down and they take them out. This is where the prophet Jeremiah, who's called the weeping prophet, is weeping because he's walking through the empty streets which used to be filled with people and children and laughter and worship of the one true God he served but is now empty and smoldering. Everyone who wasn't deported back to Babylon flees to Egypt, and, and, and Jewish tradition says that they brought Jeremiah with. They bring Jeremiah down there, and Jewish tradition says that as soon as they get to Egypt, they end up murdering him too. This is a dark, dark time. And in the midst of this, back in Babylon is Ezekiel. And Ezekiel continues to use this phrase over and over again when describing God and, and reflecting back on what God is going to say, which is the sovereign Lord. Like, it's used over 200 times in, in, in the book of Ezekiel alone. The sovereign Lord says, the sovereign Lord. And the, the words in Hebrew is actually, it, it probably could be more adequately be, uh, the ESV translates it, the Lord God. If you wanted to go straight up literal, it'd be like the Lord, Lord. It's Adonai Yahweh. But the, but the NIV translates it, the sovereign Lord, which I think bats home exactly what those words are trying to communicate and the truth of what's being communicated. Sovereignty means rightful authority. Uh, the dictionary gives it like a supreme rank, like someone who's sovereign. I've got the ranking to make this decision. I am the boss. And if you were, if you were looking at your newsfeed on Facebook, you would have seen this yesterday. Uh, South China Sea, China accuses U.S. warship of violating its what? Sovereignty. What is China saying? We are the supreme rank. We are the rightful authority in these waters. U.S., you're, you're, our sovereign authority trumps your desire to be here. Our sovereign authority trumps 
your trump. Our sovereign authority is the thing that is the ruler of the land. We get to do what we want to do. You can't do what you want to do here. And so that idea of sovereignty is communicating that. So when, when the prophet is talking through that over and over again, we see what God is saying. I am the one who's in authority. And so, so you see that when, when, when we have Ezekiel saying five, in chapter 5, verse 7, therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You've been more unruly than the nations around you and have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. You've not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Like, Israel, you're not a nation just to be a nation about yourself. Like, every other nation's like that. You're different. Like, the scripture talks about Israel being like this lighthouse. Like I said, like a beacon. A beacon warning everyone of the, of the, of the danger of the rocks and, the, and, the, and the everything around them to let them know that there is a way, that there is a light, and the only way in light is God. And there's a different way to live and a better way to live. And through Ezekiel, God is saying to them, you know what? Israel, here's the reality. You're the lighthouse, but you're dimmer than the danger. The cry, the, the, all the, the, the cliffs and the rocks around you are actually a better illuminator than you. As a country, you are dimmer than the danger. The world is supposed to see a difference in you, and they, don't see, they, they not only see a difference, they see worse than what they're even doing. And so God communicates that this is, gonna, this is over. Son of man, this is what the sovereign Lord says to the land of Israel. The end, it's over. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. But here's the thing about prophets. I mean, if you've ever like just opened up, like you did one of the things like, I'm just gonna open the Bible and see where God wants me to read. And you get to like Amos or Joel, one of these prophets, and you start reading it and it just sounds messed up, anger, God, like this is punching me in the teeth every sentence type of thing. I can't handle this. I'm done. New Testament, James, much better. Truth is, is that it, you, you may have given up too soon because all of the prophets start out being very bold and communicating God's rightful wrath. Why? Because God's sovereign. But what you get to, what you end up getting to is what we see in Ezekiel as well. Therefore say, this is God communicating, this is what the sovereign Lord says I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you back the land of Israel again. I've, I've rightfully sent you out. I rightfully stepped back as you declared your sovereignty, your sovereignty, your independence. I stepped back, but here's what I'm going to do. My mercy triumphs over my judgment. My mercy for you triumphs over my judgment against you. When we're seeing Ezekiel prophesy, we're seeing him prophesy in a time of suffering. And in church, this is the thing. What we can learn from this is watching as Ezekiel is in this period of suffering, watch what, God, what someone who's following God actually has distinct in their life as a reality of who God is, is something that we can actually learn from in 2018 in our own suffering. The, the first thing that we can learn is this. The sovereign Lord has hardwired his absolute glory to our ultimate good. The sovereign Lord has hardwired his absolute authority to our ultimate good. Again, if you've got uh, your Bible, you can turn to Ezekiel 36, 22 through 24, or if you've got your copy of the story, it's on page 245. If you don't have either, just um, pretend like you're reading or snuggle up next to the person next to you. That, that works too. This is on page 245. This is the second to last paragraph on the page. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what 
the sovereign Lord says. It's not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you've gone. I'll show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations, and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your homeland. This is the the coolest thing about the God that we serve. He's saying, I'm bringing judgment against you, and it's not because you're more attractive than others or more holy than others. I'm going to choose to show my judgment against you by doing really good stuff for you. I'm going to show my judgment to bring you back. Why? Because I am, I am showcasing my reputation and my glory to the world around you. And when I show you this goodness, it's not because you earned it, not because you deserved it, but when I do that, they're going to be blown away. God has hardwired his absolute glory. God is all about his glory. But he's hardwired it not just to his glory. He's hardwired it to our good. And we see that in, in the book of Romans. And we've, we've read this before. And we know that for those who love God, so if you love God, this is everything after this is true for you. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. Some of you were really, really bummed out after you became a Christian when you realized that life didn't get easier necessarily or better, that some things really bad happened to your life after you became a Christian. You lost your job, you lost that relationship, you, 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 got, you, got, that, you got ill. Someone you loved was lost. And you're like, hold on a second. I thought the deal was that all things were going to work good for me because of, because of Jesus. But that's not what Scripture says. Paul says, and we know that for, all, for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, the things that you've gone through in your life are, that are bad, are they good? No, they're bad. They're painful. They're wicked. They're, they're bad. You've had injustice dumped on you over and over again. That's bad. He's not saying all things are good. He's saying all things, even those things, if if you love God, will work together for good. All things for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Predestined is a fancy word for like, like destined in advance. It's like fixed, okay? You can't undo it. For those he foreknew, he also fixed to be conformed to the image of his son. Whatever you're going through, no matter whether it's good or it's garbagey, he's going to use that to make you more and more like Jesus. In order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. Okay, hold on a second. I thought God was all about his glory. Apparently, God is all about his glory, but what glorifies God is actually glorifying us by being able to work out every one of the details of our life ultimately for our good. What about my sin? What about when I have failed? Yep, that's part of it too. He's actually going to work that out ultimately for your good. What if I live in rebellion to God? Well, then you're going you're, you're gonna to be loving Jesus all the more when you experience full healing and you're going to look back at what a waste of a life, but isn't it great that that's not the end of the story? You will see God show up time and time again as one who's glorifying himself. So one of the things that we oftentimes think, if we don't say it out loud, is this. I don't know if I could trust God with 
my relationship. I don't know if I could trust God with my future. Like, I feel like God might want me to do this, but I'm sketchy about that. That seems super insecure. I don't know if I could trust God with my finances. I don't know if I could trust God with this problem that's going on right now. And honestly, this is the dumbest thing we, we could say. This is the dumbest thing that I can say. Because when we actually are looking at what the Bible says about who God is, we realize, that th- we realize this, that God is all about God and his glory. And that, according to scripture, is all good for us. All, God is all about God. And according to scripture, that's all good for us. How many of you have known someone who's super, super, super self-absorbed? Like way into themselves. How much fun is it to be around them? Not, okay, right? Right. Okay, being, being around people who are like super, super self-absorbed and into themselves, it makes you want to be like more distant. You're not like, oh man, they're so attractive because all they talk about is themselves. I just love it. I just wish I could hear more about them because that's all I hear. They never ask me about me, but that's so good because I get to hear more about them. No, when people are all about themselves, they're arrogant, they're conceited. And the truth is, you want th- them being more about them is not good for them or anyone else. It's bad. Flip side with God. The more about God that God is into, the better it is for everyone else around him who's following him. Again, God's wrath for God's people shows up as discipline to help us and bring us closer to him. God is all about God and according to scripture, that's all good for us. He's hardwired his absolute glory with our absolute good. Are you walking in that? If you feel like you can't, it, it, maybe it's the truth that you have been relying on the second thing we see from Ezekiel, which is this. The sovereign Lord gives us what we need to follow him. He gives us exactly what we need to follow him, which is himself. If you've ever felt like following God is difficult, it is crazy difficult. But look at what God says in the very next verse. This is in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 through 28. And it's in the next line on page 246 in this story. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you're going to be clean. I will cleanse you from your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will, give, you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people, and I I will be your God. We've seen this in other, we have to pause here because I mean, this is something that's so cool. See, God gave his people the government, you know, the system of, of understanding who God was with the 10 commandments of the law at Mount Sinai. They, they were in Egypt, they had Passover, 50, year, 50 days, not years, 50 days later, they're at Mount Sinai. God brings down the 10 commandments and as soon as, as soon as Moses brings the 10 commandments down, he looks around and everyone's worshiping this false God. It's like God just had like the wedding between him and his people and they're already cheating on him, like right there. And so Moses flips out, he breaks the Ten Commandments and, and, and all of a sudden the covenant right from the get-go is broken. And on that day, all of those people who were the worship leaders, 3,000 of them were executed. God brings down the law, the people can't fill it, fulfill it, 3,000 people dead. Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus dies on the cross. He rises from the grave. Everyone wants him to hang around and like make his kingdom come to earth right now. And he says, I'm going back to be with the heavenly father, but that's a good thing. I'm going to give you someone. And if they were thinking, they would have been thinking about this passage. I'm going to give you someone who's not just going to give you the law on stone tablets. I'm going to give you the law written on your heart. And 50 days after the Passover service that Jesus had with his disciples, 50 days later, they're at Pentecost. 
And that's when the disciples receive for the very first time the Holy Spirit which indwells them. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was active all the way through the Old Testament, but this was the first time that he was going to permanently indwell the followers of God. And that was a big deal because now all of a sudden they had a leader. Jesus said, you know, you could walk away from me. You could walk away from me. You could go over here. You could run away. But the Holy Spirit is going to be someone who's going to be with you wherever you go. Do you understand how amazing that is? And then Peter comes out of there and he preaches the gospel to to all the people. And how many people are saved on that day? 3,000. God gives the law. The nation breaks it because they can't keep it. 3,000 are executed. God writes the law on their hearts of the Holy Spirit, and 3,000 people are saved. God's communicating this amazing message of what's happening inside of us. Here's the, for you if you're suffering, not only do we understand that God has hardwired his good with our ultimate, God's ultimate absolute glory with our ultimate good. Not only is that true, that God is going to work this out ultimately for your good, but you also know that because of the Holy Spirit, you're not alone. And so the, the Christian life is surrendering to him. And this is something that we need to know, that lasting joy is not found in our sovereignty, but in surrendering to God's. Lasting joy is not found in our sovereignty, but in surrendering to God's. The, the cool thing is this, is that, that when, we, when we look at, when we look at um, us as Americans, we are so messed up by this, this one statement that is like tattooed on all of our hearts. I don't care if you're a Republican, a Democrat, anarchist, whatever. This is something that you believe to be true, that, that, that part of the government's job is to help us um, in the attempt of pursuing what? Happiness. That sounds awesome. It sounds super cool. The problem is, is that if my number one thing is to be independent so I can pursue my own happiness, I will run into the brick wall of disappointment time and time again. There's something better than pursuing happiness. Happiness is here today and gone tomorrow. My joy, the thing that actually is not only up here at the mountaintop, but also in the valley of absolute suffering, the joy that I have comes from me surrendering my sovereignty to God's, meaning, God, I'm going to do what you want to do, even if it's against what I want to do. That's where people have joy. Are you experiencing that? Because if, if you're trying to float through your faith and like, why am I just feeling so dead? Maybe it's because you're like still operating on your, as a sovereign nation. I do what I want to do. Whatever I want to do is what I want to do. And what God wants me to do, when it conforms to what I want to do, I do it. But instead, finding the areas of life where there's things and people that God's called you to forgive and people that God wants you to, to love that are outside your comfort zone that actually you could actually marry those two together and find that lasting joy is found not in our sovereignty but in surrendering to God's. The third thing that we see through Ezekiel is this. The sovereign Lord guides us to own the restoration he accomplishes. And this is cool because ultimately they're gonna get out of Babylon. God's promising them through Ezekiel, you're gonna come home. You're gonna come home. And and this is how he describes it. This is in in this uh, middle paragraph on 246 or uh, those verses in chapter 36. This is what the sovereign Lord says. On that, on the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say, this land that was laid waste has become like a garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you that remain will know. They'll know that I'm the Lord, that I've rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what is desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. Now, here's the weird thing, though. They eventually do come back. 
but they don't come back and have like a Lego movie thing where like all of a sudden they walk through and all of a sudden bricks are like, and like just like magically like, woo, like coming together like, and God did it. That didn't happen. The Bible says that didn't happen. They come back and what happens? First off, they have to negotiate the means to get back. They have to be diplomatic. They have to work with the Babylonian government. They eventually get back. They get resources. They have to secure the resources. They have to actually physically build on these walls back up. They physically build the temple back into existence. So why is God saying, I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it? And everyone's going to see that I did it. Because what we're seeing through Scripture is this, that when you are in that point of suffering, God does not want you to simply say, well, I guess I'm just going to wait for God and just do it. I'm just so messed up with this. I'm so sad. I'm so depressed. Just, just make it happen. God actually does something that enables us. He brings us and says, you're in suffering right now. Stand up. I can't stand up. I know you can't stand up. I will help you stand up. Now take a step. I can't take a step. I know you can't take a step. I'm going to equip you and energize you to take that step. Now I want you to talk to these people. I don't want it. I know. I'm going to give you the words. God uses in the rebuilding of that land diplomatic skill sets, architectural skill sets, security skill sets. He utilizes people to do, to pull themselves out, and it is God who accomplishes it. And everyone knows that it was God who did it. It was not them, but God energized them. Are you in suffering right now? Are you going through some really, really serious stuff? Because how you suffer is important if you're a Christian. Your pain doesn't go away. You shouldn't be a smiling person. Everything's fine. It's all good. No. But the way you suffer, if you suffer well, is vastly important and radically different from those who don't know Jesus. Because you know that there's someone who's saying, I am here with you. I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to energize you. And I'm going to help you put brick on top of brick on top of brick. Not only is your good hardwired to my glory, not only are you not alone, but I'm actually going to help you restore the situation. I'm going to transform you, and others are going to see it. Our inner transformation naturally leads to others' observation. If you're a Christian and you're burying your suffering, the fact that you're in pain, you're missing an opportunity because people need to see you suffer. Even if your suffering is by your own hands and your own choices, they need to see it and watch as you walk through it, trusting God. Now the people, they're still, in, you know, they're still deported, and so they're like, okay, this is wonderful, happy Bible talk, Ezekiel. But we're not there yet. Right now we're hopeless. We have no army. We've got no power. We've got no hope. What are we, what are we supposed to put our hope in? And so that's when God does this. He brings them to this very famous passage called the Valley of Dry Bones. And this is what I, I this is when I was a junior higher. I loved this. Um, when I was in elementary school, I loved this because I was like the kid that was always drawing skeletons on all his homework. Teachers really thought I was disturbed. But I loved skeletons and skulls and stuff like that. And I thought they looked super, super cool. So this passage, this part of the passage, like I always dug. This is on the last part of 246 or chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these, can these bones live? Now, if, if God asks you a question like that, the answer is no. Can, can, can this rock float? No. But when God asks you the question, you, you have to respond differently. And Ezekiel answers awesomely. Listen to what he says. I said, sovereign Lord, 
which was a perfect answer. Because he's saying, again, you've got the full jurisdiction on everything. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Sure. He says, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear, what the, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and, will, and they will come to life. I will attach tendons to you to make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied it as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. And the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come, come breath from the four winds and breathe into the slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath entered them. They came to life and stood upon their feet, a vast army. Okay, what is that all about? Because again, we're looking at it, it kind of sounds hopeful, like maybe kind of like, maybe with the hopefulness of like the movie Coco, but it's fused with like the creepiness of an Iron Maiden t-shirt, right? And so it's, this is something that just seems to be off and weird and disturbing. So what in the world is God saying? We see in the next verse what he's saying. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We're cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my people, I'm going to open up graves and bring you out of them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up out from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle in you and your, you, you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. To a people who had no hope, and there's nothing more hopeless as far as life than dry bones. If you or I drive down Wabina and we see a car accident, we see someone laying next to the car and, and they have no pulse, are they able to be revitalized? Yes, possibly. We can get a defibrillator out, we can do CPR. But if you or I were walking around on a hike and we came across a skeleton, is there, I don't care how good you are at CPR. That ain't happening, right? So God is saying, I'm going to take the most dire and hopeless situation and say, even there, even there, there is hope in me. Who can, who can rise these dry bones? And it's so cool because God is, is making a message. You know what? You, when something's dead, it's dead. There is no resurrection unless you know me because I'm the, I'm the king of resurrection. As dark as it is, in the midst of your suffering, I am the sovereign Lord. I've told you guys about my brother Nathan. Uh, I love this guy. He was sprinting away from Jesus for so much of his life that there was a good section of time that we thought every phone call relating to Nate was going to be like that he died, uh, that he got super wasted and got in a car accident or some, got in a fight. Um, but then God slowly but surely got a hold of his life a little bit. He started dating this girl. She wasn't a believer. Um, and she didn't, she didn't believe in Jesus at all. But then she, she became a Christian. She turned her life to Jesus. And, and all of a sudden, um, her life and his life started growing closer and closer with Christ. And she ended up getting hired at a church as a children's director, uh, where she's at right now. It's so cool. This past week, um, Amy was, um, she was, like her leg was not uh, feeling right. So she went into the doctor, and they did some tests, and they said, we're going to need to do some more tests, which is never a good sign. And then those more tests turned into more tests, and eventually they told her, uh, we're pretty sure you have MS. Now, we know people who have 
battled MS. Some of the people in our church are battling it. And, and there's a way to battle it well and go through it, and actually you can thrive in the midst of it. But when you're 30, and you're told that you're going to be walking with a walker, or when you're cooking, you're going to have, you're going to have to have a stool next to the oven because you, you just can't do what you used to do. And this ultimately will get you into a wheelchair, possibly with your particular set of circumstances. That's a tough pill to swallow. But my sister-in-law, when I was relating back and forth with her about this, she said, but basically I look at it this way. I've got, I've got an attitude decision. Either I can be angry about what part of my life is being cheated out of me, or I can say, I'm going to make the most of it. And God has given me my life. He knew this was going to happen. I could trust him through this and walk with joy. So between the two decisions, I'm going to choose this one. How could she say that? The reason she could say that probably has something to do with how she became a Christian in the first place. She didn't believe in God. I remember having a conversation in my living room with her about it. She ended up believing in Jesus after the earthquake, not the earthquake, but the tornado ripped through Joplin, where, they're, where they live. And it was like God put a weed whacker through the town. And it was in that moment that when a lot of people of faith that she knew were saying, how could I believe in a God who would allow this suffering? She would say, how could I not believe in a God who spared me from that? I don't deserve to be spared, and yet I was. This God that I don't really know a whole lot about is apparently a God of grace. And she surrendered her life to him on that day. And so she's walking through a dark period of hopelessness and suffering with the sovereign Lord because of the fact, not in spite of or besides, but because of the fact that the sovereign Lord relating to our suffering speaks into it volumes because the suffering Lord Jesus showed us his sovereign choice, his rightful choice to do whatever he wanted to do by choosing to rescue us. God in his sovereignty chose to reach out and rescue us, to draw glory from reaching out to people like you and me. If you're a Christian, that is your reality. Now, when we have baptisms, we have baptisms, that's what we're proclaiming. Uh, if, if that's kind of fuzzy for you, baptism is, is a proclamation of what Jesus did. That we, when I, when I asked Jesus to forgive my sins, I connected with Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. He died my death, paying for all my sins, and he rose again so that I could have life. It's my connection to him. And so when, we, when you see the, the people getting baptized, there's five people getting baptized this weekend. Most of them are kids. When you see them getting baptized and they come up out of that water, I want the first sounds that their ears are hearing as the water's draining out to be applause and cheering because we are celebrating what God has done in each of them, okay? The second thing is this that I want you to do. If you are a Christian and you watch this, I want you to remember your baptism. The fact that, that you weren't simply proclaiming your choice to connect with Jesus, but his choice to connect with you. And whatever suffering you're going through, you can recall the fact that his choice is still, think back to your baptism, his choice is still to connect to you and walk with you through whatever it is that you're walking through. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray. If that is not your story yet, perhaps you can make that your story this morning, and then we're going to hear the stories up, up on the screen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the fact that the loudest and most pronounced reality in our world is not something that we could manufacture, but something that you accomplished. Our salvation is not built on our track record or what we could do. Lord, you haven't saved people because they're more moral, more upstanding, more righteous. You saved us because we were unrighteous, because we were dead in our sin. That's the rescue story that we celebrate, God. We thank you for that. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who is not connected to you, 
that they will surrender their individual sovereignty to yours, that you'll be the leader of their life, that the one who forgives their sin because of what you did on the cross and your death and your resurrection will be the one who meets them this very moment in 2018. And God, as we see that, we will give you the thanks and the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Take a look at the screen.